and welcome to a not-so-regular episode of the Jellyfish Current, where we talk about all things performance, marketing and branding with exciting guests from the industry. As you may have noticed, I'm not Shinsu Chowdhury. In honor to Culture Day, a special Jellyfish event bringing together conversations around the impact of culture and diversity in business and within the workplace, I, Luisa Monteiro Furlan, Culture and Engagement Director at Jellyfish, am guest hosting this episode. Our topics will center diversity and inclusion in the workplace from different perspectives. We'll be joined by Group Account Director Nigel Hilson, who will talk about being proud and celebrate diversity in the workplace, and also by Abby Both, Creative Director and author of A Different Kind of Normal, her illustrated memoir on growing up neurodivergent. Let's start with Nigel. Hi, Nigel. How are you? Hi, I'm Nigel. My pronouns are he, him. I work in client services. I'm based out of a London office, and I am also sit on the Pride Jellies ERG. Amazing. Thank you. So, Nigel, diversity in the workplace has come a long way towards having people embrace who they are at work. What changes have you seen and what have been your experiences in this area? You're right. I've seen quite a few changes from when I kind of first started out. I would say an observation I have around this idea about being able to bring your authentic self to the workplace is necessarily it has a benefit on those people who feel that that's important to them. I don't know whether this is something that has been observed or measured I think there's a halo effect here that goes on that has a benefit to everybody else in the workplace, whether or not they feel part of a kind of a community or a group. And if you see it in other people being able to be themselves, it enables you to be yourselves. And I think that kind of lifts everybody up. I'd love to know if there was some kind of psychology kind of tests or measures to see if this was a thing. But I, I sense that it probably is. And I think it also gives us great value as well, because I think it, in, it makes sure that we are reminded that people can be different and have different perspectives from ourselves. And I think it can only benefit everybody because I think it shows us all the kind of diversity that makes us better at who we are, that makes us more empathetic, and that can make us, I think, give better work, deliver better work for our clients to ensure that the answers to their problems and solutions that we're giving are rooted in a more authentic and diverse and empathetic um, perspective. I think that's so insightful because, indeed, the more you speak about a thing, the more people learn about it. And, and sometimes you don't even reflect upon it before it's first spoken to you. I remember one situation where we, we would make a lot of videos saying how it was for last year's Pride and just internal of people saying like how they came out uh, for the first time. And one of the videos had a person saying, I'm coming out at work today because I saw so many other people that I felt inspired and safe to share that with you. And it got me thinking like how much not only being diverse, but because being diverse is really the fact that you were different, but making the effort of being inclusive, of talking about new subjects, even if you still don't know them enough. And, and bringing the conversation up is important for people to feel represented and ultimately empowered. And I wanted to know if you had any experiences 
of workplaces getting it wrong when it comes to embracing diversity? Sadly, yes. So some years ago, at a different company, I was wanting to set up something around kind of uh, diversity. I was wanting to set up a, a, a pride group or an LGBTQ plus group. So I went to I went to the top. I went to a global HR director at this company and said, "Hey, I've got this idea. This is what I think it will benefit us. This is why I think it's important." It was misunderstood and misinterpreted that this was a kind of criticism or a critique of the company that there were potentially problems in terms of representation. And as a consequence, I was told in no uncertain terms that there was no problem in this company around treatment of LGBTQ plus people. I knew for a fact that wasn't true because as a gay man, I knew some of the things that had been said to me, sometimes in jest, sometimes with, you know, a little microaggression, I think would probably be the term that would be used these days. But there wasn't then, I was shut down. And there was then no opportunity. Because I'd gone to HR, there was nowhere else to go. There was no forum, there was no community, there was no group, there was no safe space for me. Now, I'd come to that workplace being open about who I was. And I didn't have a problem with that myself per se. But I knew that there would be others within the organization, within the company that couldn't potentially be themselves. And as we've just kind of spoken about, the value and the benefit of being able to be true to yourself and being bringing your authentic self to work has, you know, wonderful kind of positive kind of benefits. I was genuinely, I came out of that meeting actually, and I was actually genuinely kind of upset and um, and, and hurt and I couldn't see a kind of a way forward. Now, as it happened, I was given an opportunity. Somebody kind of overheard or saw me coming out of that meeting, saw that there was a problem, spoke to me, an ally in this instance, and we worked through it and we were able to actually, in the end, there was a positive outcome and that was able to kind of set, we were able to actually set something up. And I've subsequently seen that company proudly, you know, in London's Pride Parade. And I know I had a, a, a you know, a part in getting that off the ground and, and getting that kind of started. But I, so I think if, if there's a lesson here about companies kind of getting it wrong, I think it's an assumption that there, there aren't any, any problems here. Not having places or forums to be able to hear or listen and making assumptions you've got the it's all very well if they're you potentially have policies and practices in place it's how are they kind of felt and kind of enacted on the ground i think that can often be telling as to whether they are working or not and if you're not asking people from those communities whether what you've got in place is working is supportive is making you feel safe and that there's a a route or an opportunity for you to kind of raise questions or concerns and that you're not shut down. If you do do that, then yeah, I I think those are going to watch outs for for kind of organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I like the way that you put like the dialogue or or being open to, to hearing people as a key aspect in that because 
at some point when you say that you are inclusive enough that's that's the exact moment where you just you know uh realize that you're not being inclusive at all because it's um it's a muscle and you can never get enough of of being inclusive i also have some restraints when i hear around the business uh, people saying we treat everyone equally all the time because it seems like it's being over general concept that everyone is a person therefore you're treating them as a person without and it takes away what you were saying earlier like the beauty of all the differences that that we bring to the table that need to be not only respected but really cherished and used as an asset for us as professionals well you also brought a point that i found like really interesting um in your story about the role of the ally and how they helped you make your own impact and i would like you to elaborate on that so because of course just going back one point and and how we define an ally and i will share my definition you tell me if you if you agree with me is someone who doesn't necessarily belong to that community but helps the community getting powers doesn't take the voice for them but give them the voice right help them do that that's a great definition i i don't think i can really add to that i think isn't an ally is empathetic and can be a good listener um but you're right that they, they won't necessarily know or completely understand a, the situation that somebody might find themselves in 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 a, in a given kind of community but i think having having that support network around is again is is invaluable i mean in a, in a workplace and just in life in general i think yeah an ally is every, everybody needs an ally no matter no matter who or where they are <laughs> they do yeah what is the impact that allyship can have in companies once you start fomenting this this environment for for support and and amplifying diversity it's a really interesting question i think it helps amplify the voices of those communities and can spread spread the word spread the education in some places or just you know the benefits or the values that of that community in my specific example i i found an a, that ally was able to help me make a difference and make a change within an organization and that was invaluable and i needed that from a kind of an emotional kind of support and a kind of not to be broken by what had happened and to make something good out of what had happened and something good did come out of it but maybe that's a very specific example and that's not always going to be the case but an ally i think can be that person to help give support and that might be any number of ways just by turning up and being counted i think can be is a great thing just knowing that you're not alone i think is another it's an odd thing when you're very coming out at the very beginning of you know whenever you do that at whatever age there's a sense in which you can or maybe that's not true now but when certainly in my day it was you felt like you could be the only person and you were alone and there wasn't anybody else like like you out there and then when you kind of find your tribe and get a sense of belonging to know that there's other people that might not be part of your tribe but are there to kind of help and support you 
and accept you for who you are, I think that's that's gold. That's, that's beyond gold. That's really strong what you're bringing. Like it, I love it. <laughs> and then this would be from the people dimension, from how, how you can connect, connect with other humans and, and make them feel better and, and make a difference and create an impact, which was also the session that, that you participated on, on Culture Day. Like, how can you create the impact, which was amazing. And how do you think that companies can provide an atmosphere that allows people to be their authentic selves the way that, that we are discussing here today? We've touched, I think, on some of the areas that I think help. And that's about allowing people to feel safe and to feel comfortable in so that if there is an incident where they don't feel that they can be them, themselves, they can kind of point out where those problems might exist. A sense of having a sense of a space or a kind of sense of belonging, I think, can also be helpful. But I've, I have a slightly different perspective as well. So in a previous life, I was a um, disability consultant and I went into to companies to talk to them about accessibility, both from a point of view of disabled customers but also from an employee point of view. And from a consultative point of view, when we were talking about thinking about a company's employees and when we were talking to companies, one of the areas that we talked, asked them to think about was have a look at your an employee's kind of life cycle. From the very beginning, when they might approach you or from a kind of, you know, from a recruitment point of view through to making an offer, through to that very first day, through to kind of living and working at, at the company from promotions and day-to-day -day kind of the things that you do, right through to leaving the company. And I think that logic can flow through here about what those, thinking about all of those kind of touch points, where, how can we make sure that every single one of these kind of touch points that an individual can be and bring their authentic self to the workplace. And that might be at a practical level in terms of kind of policies and, and, and procedures, but it might be also be about a, a more emotional thing. Think about that first day when you come, come at a start at a new job. And if you're to come there and, you know, you get a warm welcome and you're given your, you know, your laptop and your headphones or, you know, and you, this is where the kitchen is and this, this, that and the other. And then it's like, and we've got all of these communities. We've got all of these, if you're, you know, here are our communities, join our Slack channels, find out more about them. These are the events that we've got kind of going on. These are the sort of things that we've got there. I think that, again, that I think that would be a really kind of powerful kind of message to send. And again, if you think, if you take a step back on that, thinking about that from a recruitment point of view, you know, when you're looking out there, if you're looking for a new job or if you're looking to come to work at somewhere, and you see that there's posts or kind of information about that, if you see that they've got a float or their pride march, given that this is pride month. And, you know, those things kind of give you a kind of, okay, give me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside and think, okay, this is somewhere that I recognize that I can be who I want to be and they're going to kind of support me and this is going to be a great place to work. And, yes, we can get all the policies 
practices and procedures in place and make sure they're working. We can have kind of places to kind of, you know, escalate or kind of, you know, raise kind of questions if we're not happy about things. But it's that there's an emotional thing here. And I think if you can get that right at the very beginning and you can see that through throughout every kind of touch point in your kind of career or your, your time working, I think that would be that would be an amazing that would that gives you the atmosphere that you'd want. Absolutely. And I love how, how you brought the employee experience because this is a science that and there there are a lot of practitioners in, in that area and, and and like devoting their time to, to create that atmosphere as a key point for people to becoming I, I don't know if the ambassador is if the, the best word, but but really like trusting the company, trusting that that they can, you know, uh, that the the amount of hours that they are hired to spending there can be more than than just doing their jobs and and bringing that that aspect of their lives that that is so so rich and and brings so much value. I I love it, Nigel. I feel so inspired. If someone doesn't have any strategy of DEI. It, that stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I also like to add the B, so DIB, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging in their companies. And they would like to start today. Where do they start? Starting small and start by reaching out to people within a company or an organization and say, uh, reach out to those, to those people and say, what would you like? What would What would help you feel like this is a place that, makes you feel comfortable, that makes you feel safe, that gives you a sense of belonging, that enables you to bring your true and authentic self to work. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nigel, and for the insights that you brought to us today. I know I learned a lot. And now with you, Abigail Both. Besides being a creative director at Jellyfish, Abigail Wolf is also a published author and illustrator who identifies as neurodivergent woman. Her personal journey of navigating the workplace as a late-diagnosed autistic adult with ADHD made her an advocate for neurodiversity within companies. We will discuss how she makes work work for her. So, hi, Abby. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So... I was curious, um, what inspired you to actually sit down and write a book on the subject of neurodiversity? Well, <laughs> um, I was actually studying an MA in children's book illustration part-time alongside my social media job um, at Social Life prior to the jellyfish acquisition. And it was being back in the classroom that reminded me of all the things I'd found difficult when I was a child at school. And it was during the course that I actually received my autism diagnosis. Um, and that, like there was loads of things I'd found difficult about work and life, but for years, I just kind of thought I was being weird or sensitive. And then I also started to think that it was due to alcohol, even though like I wasn't drinking all the time, but like if I'd had a drink four days ago and I'd still think I was hungover a few days later when what I was experiencing was actually to do with my autism. So when I gave up alcohol and those things were still there, I started to realize there was something else going on. And after learning a couple of Uh, my friends had been diagnosed as autistic and knowing how similar we were, I looked into it and I realized I wasn't hungover because I felt overwhelmed and sick on the journey to work. And I wasn't hungover in an office meeting or lunch when I couldn't make eye contact or absorb spoken information when I hadn't even like had a drink for five days or whatever. 
I was basically autistic and experiencing sensory overload. And back to the question, I made the book because I was on this course and I naturally started sketching and writing memories and thoughts um, in my uni sketchbook. And as the pages came together, I realized just how helpful an actual book like this about someone's real life experience about growing up undiagnosed autistic and feeling like you don't fit in could be like, it could be so helpful for other young people struggling. So I made it my final degree show project and I produced this little sample book and some art cutouts and sketchbooks at my degree show. And I ended up having an agent get in touch with me a a few days before the show after she'd seen my work in the catalogue. And then through the show, I ended up having like seven publishers get in touch, interested in publishing it. Um, And I had loads of meetings and my agent ended up taking the book to auction. And then we had like publishers competing against each other to win it, which was really surreal. And ended up going with Puffin um, books, who are amazing, and getting a two-book deal with them. So there's that book about, that's for middle grade, like, nine plus um, children but I've also got a picture book that's going to be for younger children also about well it's going to be about an autistic cat so so much misinformation out there and there's been so much stereotyping over and it's not until very recently that people are starting to realize just how autism ADHD and other forms of neurodivergence can manifest and the reason I properly found out I was autistic I suppose was because of listening to people's real life stories online and like following people on Instagram and um, reading just real life things and there was a blog a woman wrote about female traits of autism and at least now I kind of know um, like autism shouldn't be gendered like this but back then it was a really helpful thing to read to understand my own experiences and I know a lot of people have read that list and have got diagnosed after reading the list because it's such a eye-opening thing like lots of us have grown up thinking autism is a little white boy who likes playing with trains and um, numbers (laughs) it's not like that at all but yeah I think it just kind of Real stories are so important, like listening to real stories from the neurodivergent community rather than a lot of the not so good information that you often see created around Autism Awareness Months. Um, And that's actually a time that a lot of people in our community take a step back because we don't like to see what is actually being talked about. And it can be quite, yeah, quite frustrating and um, but yeah, real stories are so important. And I think like my book kind of proves that because it, <laughs> now I'm going to show off. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was shortlisted for Children's Nonfiction Book of the Year at the British Book Awards and Best Book with Facts at the Blue Peter Book Awards. And it's, it's used in it, Book Trust have given it free to hundreds of schools around the com- country and National Literary Trust have done the same through an, another scheme and I'm always getting schools messaging and asking me to come and talk to them and stuff. And it's used in hospital. Even the other day, someone told me that in their work contract, my book was mes- was included as a thing to learn about how other neurodivergent people in the company might like experience life. So like, it's not limited to just children. It's something a lot of adults 
have related to as well. Now I just sound like I'm plugging my book the whole time. We've got more to talk about than this. <laughs> I think that takes me to the second question because you could use your book to many other layers that you haven't even planned to. And we know that many people go through the ebbs and flows of the feeling of being different. And I know you mentioned the example of the alcohol, but I wasn't wondering, like, did your experience come with any other difficulties while growing up? And if it did, how did you end up embracing that as a superpower of yours? Yeah, there were many difficulties and I had no idea why I felt like an alien. And it was kind of like everyone else had been given some sort of rule book of life about how to be a person. And I was always observing and trying to work out how to be normal um, by looking at everyone else. And when I was at school, I tried to keep myself to myself, really. And but I still got bullied. But I remember it changed one day because One day, I think when I was 15, well, I'd got this really intense special interest, um, which is something a lot of autistic people experience. And I had this really intense special interest about a very specific episode of EastEnders, this soap opera in the UK. And it was the episode on the 14th of February, 1999, where Steve killed Saskia with the ashtray. And this, this episode, I worked out how to like get somehow get this episode into every piece of my GCSE coursework and I was writing a story one lunchtime and I used to kind of like, go off on my own and um like well mainly just hide in the piano room and eat my sandwich over the keys hoping that no one would come in and tell me off how sad is that <sighs> um but once I was writing this story and I kind of got in a good mood because of the writing and I went back into the classroom like after lunch and instead of just sitting in silence I turned to the girl next to me and said do you watch EastEnders And she said, yes. And then I just stood up and then I got my script and I just started reading out a, the story. And everyone was laughing, but like in a good way, not at me, like with me, because they liked my story. And I thought, oh, this is a way to make friends. And then I started using humor and stories and to actually kind of, I don't know, it, it helped. <laughs> and it was sort of, oh, and then when I went to college and I decided to sort of, reinvent myself a bit more and I because I'd always been really like good and trying to follow the rules and trying to blend in and didn't want to be shouted at and just wanted wanted to do well at school stayed up really late working all the time and I went to college and I thought well this EastEnders business that worked really well to help get friends maybe I can just properly go with the humor and maybe I can fool people into thinking I'm normal or like I'm able to have conversation I don't know but I don't know. I just, I, I, I still don't even know now sometimes. Was I masking, which is something a lot of us autistic people do, or was this really how I was? Because I went from being totally quiet to like totally talking all the time. And like my, I remember my music teacher split me and my friend up and like told me I was an attention seeker. <laughs> and this friend has recently found out she's autistic too. Um, And but but I ended up making friends um, who were more like me, and yeah, and a lot of them I found out are autistic too. But then when I started the world of work, I started to learn that there were more rules, and this way that I'd been embracing my humor and just kind of being me in a silly way, and 
not trying to follow the rules as much that didn't work in the in the world of work and a lot of us people with ADHD experience quite a lot time blindness and it's something that I've struggled with for a lot and I didn't know how to be on time for anything and back and now I think we're probably going about like 14 15 years ago or something but I didn't know how to be on time for work or anything and I used to turn up I think up to around an hour and a half late every day and I remember once I was only 20 minutes late and my boss said to me, what happened to you? Did someone push you onto the bus? And it's like, I, I don't know, there's things, unwritten rules that I just didn't seem to know about. And then my first, I, I got this new special interest about Channel 4. I'd worked on a Channel 4 project through my first social media job. And then I decided to make it my mission to work there. And I was so obsessed with the idea of working there. I did ever I applied for every job, work placement, I volunteered there, I just did as much as I could to get in. And finally I managed it <laughs> um, through a work experience thing. And after the work experience was over, I thought oh, this is ridiculous. I should have a job at Channel 4. So I sent them an email saying, this is a list of all the reasons you should give me a job. And then to my surprise, they replied and said, oh, well, actually, um, someone's, someone left last week. We were thinking about emailing you. Uh, when can you start? So then I just immediately started managing the social media for E4. And it was that simple. But back in those days, we didn't used to do content plans in social media. And when I first started, my boss said to me, I was kind of asking what the rules were. And he said, I'm happy to not supervise you. And that in my brain, taking it very literal, because autistic people can be quite literal thinkers. I took that and did a lot with it and <laughs> didn't last in the job very long. One post, I did a Facebook post asking E4 users for their bank details um, I'm looking back now and I'm thinking, how did I think that was a normal, okay thing to do? And I got told off. And the reason I remember I got told off is because I was looking through the social posts and I found a post that I'd written saying, note to self, do not ask E4 users for their bank details. The moderators are strict like that. And so my response to being told off by Channel 4 was to go onto the Facebook page and write another status telling all of the followers that I'd been told off and what I'd been told off for instead of, I don't know. It's just the post is actually still up there, that one, because I found it the other day. And people were like, oh, wow, E4, you actually did get told off. Um, <laughs> oh, I just used to do all these really silly statuses. Like I remember, I, just, I don't know, I, I once I posted a photo of my mum wearing a shower cap and pretended that she worked in the post room and that she was a courier and was getting and was going to deliver messages to famous people. And I called her Mavis and I said, um, yeah, and it was and then I just stuck a piece of paper that said E4 on her face and took a photo. It was it was it was a weird time, but it was through that. The thing is, even though I did a lot of stuff that was a bit risky and I got told off for, it was also the humour and that stuff that got me the jobs after that and it was what people noticed because when the broadcasters didn't used to talk to each other I 
proposed to BBC Comedy from E4 and then BBC Comedy accepted and then we, we were like arranging this social media wedding and like someone had noticed that who worked on something else and then I ended up getting a job on Russell Howard's Good News and then it kind of went on from there so even I think what I'm trying to say it's been a learning process of you know how to be a professional person who does a job but now I've managed to strike a balance between being able to do the humor and being able to like be a (laughs) professional person it still sounds funny saying that because I feel like a child a lot of the time still but I also wouldn't post on anyone's accounts asking for bank details anymore. So, yeah, now I'm able to use my uniqueness to for, like, good stuff, like running as clients and Emmy Awards and stuff. And now I try not to let the sort of imposter syndrome of the past affect me. But I still think it's a process. And when people say about neurodivergence being a superpower, I think sometimes it can kind of mask some of the struggles we have. I remember when I first got diagnosed with autism and I found, I ended up thinking, oh no, what if um, my employers think that I can't do my job as well because I'm autistic? Um, and I ended up like finding a list of positive traits of, ha- of having an autistic employee to share with my bosses as it seems weird to think of that now, but I did, and I didn't need to do that because they already valued me and my work, and they were just happy for me to get answers. And they like asked how they could make me more comfortable and stuff. Um, and that's how it should be. And I, I think a lot of us late diagnosed feel the need to sometimes overwork and to subscribe to this superpower narrative to prove ourselves as good enough because we've been made to feel less than for a lot of our lives. But I'm kind of trying to move away from that and just allowing myself to be me. So embracing both my talents, my skills, qualities, while also making space for the things I struggle with and when trying to fit into the neurotypical world. Because when I'm at home on my own, for example, my autism is not a problem at all. It's only when I have to force myself into like the capitalist society of rules and schools, uni, work, social situations. And that's when I'm aware of being different. I have two questions for you. So one is how people that are neurodivergent can seek more support within the workspace and finally make work work for them and how the employers on their side can be more supportive of that community and integrate that to the wider community, making the most out of the talents that they have in place. Well, I think sometimes it's more about people being unkind to people who appear different and not knowing someone is neurodivergent rather than being unkind because of it, in my experience. I mean, obviously, the very term neurodiversity is about celebrating different brain types, but many people have misconceptions about different types of neurodivergence, like autistic children are often bullied for the way they talk or interact or walk or just appear and they don't have to have a diagnosis children just kind of know if someone's different and adults as well it goes into the world of work as well sadly but an autism like is supposedly an invisible disability but often it's not invisible for whom like sometimes it appears invisible because the person is masking so much so kind of suppressing their autistic traits to try to appear normal for example I used to keep very still in class and at work and not move or get up even though I needed to and I needed to regulate my nervous system and 
but no one could tell I was physically struggling. But now I openly stim if I need to. Like the other day I was on a training um, session. It was really, it was a, like four hours long or something. And we had to be on camera the whole time. And I thought, well, I'm just going to be me <laughs> as I, yeah, like I was, I was like tapping. I kind of do EFT tapping stuff on my like meridian points to regulate my nervous system and I hold crystals to like to various chakras and sometimes swing about a bit on my chair and I thought well I need to do this because otherwise I won't feel as good and I'm not going to try hide these things anymore because I deserve to function in a way that my brain naturally needs to function just like we all do and like another example like three hours into a into a training thing I didn't know we were going straight into a sort of a a role play thing and I find it hard to have a back and forth conversation if I've been in communication with people for (laughs) for a long time and I just immediately said I don't think I'm going to do very well at this because I've got sensory overload they said well is there anything we can do to help with that and I said I said no because it is what it is I'll tr- I'll do my best but it might not be as good as it would be at the beginning of the course and then the week after the that exercise was moved to the beginning so that I was able to you know do it better so like I know communicating can be really hard especially if you're just learning about yourself and it's I still find it really hard in some ways like I've had <laughs> I've had there's lots of, like I don't openly talk about still. I, I was on a, a Google Hangout where it was a meeting. There was lots of sort of overlapping talking and there wasn't a, an a agenda. And I got sensory overload so bad that after this call, I had to, I, I actually physically was sick. And then I had to lie down for four hours in the dark to recover. And I think sometimes hard to see how autism in particular can manifest in a person unless you are that person and basically coming back to the question you need to do whatever whatever you can to preserve your your health basically and as you were saying about you know people being unkind for various things but if someone does that, like if someone makes fun of you for your stims or looks at you weird or for the way you walk or talk or what, or something you ask for, that's on them. Like you don't have to change. And it's more painful in the long run if you suppress your autistic traits. Now, that's why so many of us end up in burnout from the years of masking, pretending to be neurotypical so that we have a much lower threshold, which is in my case, like I have a much lower threshold for lots of things now because of the pressure I put myself under for so many years so basically yeah (laughs) you need to look after yourself it's important what advice may you have for others who may be exploring how to broach these topics with their employers in order to cover their own needs for inclusivity do what feels right for you basically some people aren't comfortable with disclosing or talking about it but in my experience it's been the best thing for me Um, before my diagnosis I struggled in silence thinking I was just weird and broken and had to try harder than everyone else but when I discovered both my autism and ADHD um, 
even before like having a, an official diagnosis because there's so many barriers to those these days but like I was able to identify what works for me and what doesn't and then ask for what I need so like for me like working in an office environment completely drains me means I can't talk by the afternoon have to wear sunglasses headphones end up feeling physically sick and the thing is I thought that was normal and I just put up with it every day for years until COVID happened and suddenly I felt physically healthy again being able to control my environment and then I knew I couldn't go back and I think learn once you learn about yourself like this it's the first step to making work and life work for you and in my experience I needed to talk about it in order for people to understand what I what I needed to be able to do my job and the thing is some I suppose some businesses don't always realize that if you're expecting a neurodivergent person to do the same as a neurotypical it's not it's not only not in the best interest of that person, it's not in the best interest of the company either because they're not going to be able to do their job within the time that you want them to do it if they're also having to battle with like the fluorescent lighting, the sensory overload, like the panic and all of that. And I know in the past I was definitely clocking up more hours than I do now for the same stuff because it was taking me longer because I couldn't focus and I was physically ill from the environment. And the thing is, I think back now, I know the reason why I experience periods of burnout more easily these days is from the years in the past of trying to fit into this box I was not made to fit. So in my experience, it feels worse to struggle in silence. And once you can talk to someone about it and ask for accommodations, you get a sense of relief and you are like listened to and hopefully met with empathy. And I know in an ideal world that neurodivergent and disabled people shouldn't need to ask for accommodations and we should all be able to exist in comfort and work in a way that works for us naturally but the way society is set up means that's rarely the case Um, and change takes time especially systematic change but by having these conversations like we're having now and by providing space safe spaces like the disability eig and by like the work with me initiative like and the work that many of us are doing to improve policies and structures within businesses like we'll make those changes and then hopefully it'll become a lot easier for us to be who we need to be and work as people (laughs) work as people great great conclusion in the best way possible (laughs) is it how you make work work for you right yep um well I think you sort of answer a little bit of what I wanted to ask you for less but I will ask you either way because I know there's a lot of insight in there that I want to explore How can companies better embrace neurodivergent employees and make it a safe space for them to express themselves? So you mentioned the employee resource group that we have here at uh, Cold Disabilities. You mentioned uh, our conjoint uh, project called Work With Me, where uh, people would put in their Slack profiles what is the best way of working with them so you, you could reach out in the first contact and, uh, and understand what is the best way of collaborating, increasing efficiency of the communication and and how the person feels, making them feel more comfortable. But what other things can be done? Well, I think firstly, um, people in positions of power, like leaders, HR, management, etc., um, need to educate themselves on neurodivergence. Um, they need training on how to support employees and 
there are some great free resources we can all access like LinkedIn learning is a, is a great starting point and we need to like ensure company processes policies hiring practices etc are equitable and accessible for all so like for example that means like no blanket rules that immediately exclude some people like for example if you're saying uh, everyone has to come to the office regardless of individual circumstance and like not expecting it just to be the people with the lived experiences to be doing the work to make the changes as many of us are just really tired trying to navigate like life and all of these things for ourselves honoring reasonable adjustments so like flexible home working uh, equipment requests such as noise cancelling headphones uh, no meeting days can be extremely helpful for many neurodivergent people because back-to-back meetings and all through the week can be really exhausting creating safe space for discussion community support so yes the ERGs um we've got the mental health first aiders as well um and I've just done the training actually finished it last week so that I can more easily be able to uh you know support people especially people who want to talk about neurodivergence and disability. There's lots that can be done, but I think it starts with education and with active listening, like with with a desire to include, like not for company gain or public recognition, but to fully support our communities as equals, not like simply to accommodate or, or tick boxes, but to to make us all equal. I love this element that you bring about this collective intelligence, right? So it's not policies and adjustments for neurodivergent people. They are not only for neurodivergent people. They are for people in the journey of discovering if they are neurodivergent or not. They are for people that work with them, for their bosses, for their communities. So if this benefits everyone, why should that be an obligation of you as a neurodivergent person. I really like that thought. Yeah, we all work differently. We all have different things that we feel comfortable with and different ways we like to communicate and to do our jobs. And it benefits everyone to be able to have these discussions. And yeah, the Work With Me initiative, like we were saying, is a really great place to start because it opens up those conversations. Thank you so much for joining us today, Abby, and for all the insights that you brought. I always feel that every time you you come in, because you're such a fierce advocate for neurodiversity and, and how you can make inclusion really be inclusive for neurodivergent people, um, every time you come in, you just teach uh, everyone so much. So you can always follow her on social media and uh, reach out to us as well if you have uh, any questions. Thank you so much for your contribution, Abby. Thank you so much to our guests, Abby and Nigel, for sharing your time today. And thank you for following this episode with us. I'm Luisa, and this was a pleasure to guest host on Jellyfish Current. Be sure to tune in to our next episodes featuring Shamsu, talking with some exciting guests. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform that you use to stay updated with the latest episodes. And do leave a review if you feel so inclined. If you have questions or feedback about the show, send us an email at thecurrent@jellyfish.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Jellyfish Current is produced by the editorial and production teams at Jellyfish. Want to learn more? Visit us at jellyfish.com. Thanks, and it was a great pleasure to have you here with us today.